The following program is brought to you by Podcast One Sportsnet. Don't forget to download our new Podcast One app. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. It is a huge week in college football. First, the college football playoff rankings are out, but don't get too married to them. There are four games matching top 15 teams on Saturday that have potential to turn everything the committee just did upside down. We have two guests this week to talk about it all. First up is Dennis Dodd, National College Football Writer from CBS. We'll talk all things playoff. Then we'll stay in the CBS family and talk to Gary Danielson. He'll be on the call for Alabama LSU on Saturday night. We'll preview that game with Gary, along with the SEC undercard, Georgia and Kentucky. Thanks again for listening to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. You can find us on Podcast One. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts. Please subscribe, and if so inclined, give us a good review. And as usual, you can go to collegefootball.ap.org, where you can read all of AP's college football coverage. And away we go. My first guest this week is Dennis Dodd from CBS. It's going to be an all-CBS show, like I referred to earlier, because Gary Danielson would join us in a little bit. Dennis, thanks a lot for doing this, and we are recording before the playoff rankings come out. So we're not going to preview the rankings and we're not going to review the rankings. And quite frankly, the four teams, we have a pretty good idea who the, who the top four will be. Alabama, Clemson, Notre Dame, LSU, in some order. I think we're all pretty confident of that. And on Saturday, that whole thing is going to get blown up anyway. So it, it, I think the interesting thing about, if anything, about these rankings that will be out by the time you're, you're hearing this, audience, is that, first of all, they're not that meaningful anyway. But secondly, and more importantly, Saturday will really be the meaningful day. And the, the rankings next week will actually probably tell us something. So what do you think, Dennis? No, I agree. I, you know, I, I, I've made the, the case for years that uh, the committee – as much as they want to say it, are just parroting the AP and coaches top 25 in the first week. And it's the first shuffle of that first week after where you get to see where their heads are at. I mean, not, not, not in the four years of the playoff, they have selected 94% of the same teams as AP first week, 92.5% of the top 10. Um, and last year uh, had the exact order of six of the top 10 in AP. So, so tell me they're not looking at the polls. That's interesting. Cause I did a little, I did a little numbers crunching or some research. You did a, lo- a little more extensively than I did. What yeah. I noticed though, is they've never had the same top four in order. Have at, at times have had, mm-hmm. haven't even had, they've never even had the same four teams. But now they're not drastically different. What's happening is you're seeing three of the same four teams, slightly different orders. You're right. The general blueprint is going to look similar to the polls. Now, whether they are consciously mimicking or maybe the polls sort of set a decent standard and you inevitably you fall into that standard. But there's always been at least enough differences to make it seem like the committee is thinking independently. At least on that first one. I, th- I think my general point is people talk, oh, we don't need preseason polls. Well, yeah, we need preseason polls because what you're looking at is a template 
from those preseason polls. Uh, the AP and coaches poll get to this point, and as I said, the the uh, the free thinkers at the selection committee are not this first week. They're just not. Um, you get to see what they're thinking in subsequent weeks when. You know, I always say we can we can debate this from now to the end of time, but they can do whatever they want. And they proved that in year one when they moved a, a number three TCU, which won by 52 points in its last game, dropped in three spots and moved up Ohio State. So they had corrected their own quote unquote mistake because they could. So, right. yeah, I mean, we can talk about this this week. But, yeah, there's going to be some sh- shuffling going forward yeah it's the whole blank slate thing right yeah, you try to yeah, exactly. a blank paper which is eh, you know not really that's not really exactly that i mean that that, that tent i mean i guess you could say that's what happens but you can't clear people's memories so anyway we're gonna have these rankings tonight and there'll be a little bit of a stir about them and then they're going to get sort of messed up but let's just talk about let's talk about the playoff scene because i think you know, this is the time of the year when playoff talk becomes sort of legitimate because you're going to have games that will maybe not literally, but essentially eliminate teams and essentially, you know, vault other teams into contention. Let's start with it. Because again, there's some super big games this weekend. But one of the teams that's not playing one of those big games is Clemson. And Clemson <laughs> seems to be in a situation. They play Louisville. They seem to have a very clear path here to a perfect season and to an easy playoff spot because you know they they could literally get to the playoff with playing maybe no ranked teams you know by the, by the time we get to the end of the season none of the yeah. teams that they could have played w- would have been ranked yeah, one at kickoff, NC State. Yeah. Yes, one at kickoff, yeah. NC State. Maybe yeah. BC a week from now could it could happen. So uh, I guess my question is. Does Clemson need to go unbeaten here? Uh, are they in trouble with any kind of a loss just because they, they, they're they going to lack the marquee wins? I, I think they do. And I'm not saying they'd be left out. I'm just saying it would be a discussion. Because then, you know, the same way I think Notre Dame needs to win them all, but for a different reason. They only play 12 games. They can't bolster their resume with a 13th game against a ranked team in a conference championship game. But I, I think when you when you're a Clemson and you lose, you put your, you put yourself in a conversation with an Ohio State that may end up winning the Big Ten. It certainly doesn't look like that now. But uh, when, when you're you know you know tell me who uh, Clemson loses to. Well, we know who Ohio State lost to, and that was a really bad loss. You put yourself in a comparison side to side with them. Uh, you put yourself in a comparison with. A Michigan that beats Ohio State and is, you know, played to my, you know, to my uh, opinion, one bad quarter against Notre Dame and has been on the upturn since then uh, in the in the opener. Um, you put yourself in comparison with a twelve and one Oklahoma. So these are all choices the committee would have to make. If you go thirteen and zero, then you're just talking about seeding. That's why I suggested it. I just threw it out there. It is one of these reasons that. Dabo is carpet bombing these ACC teams is just to make sure he stays out of the fourth seed, you know, but, but they would definitely be in. Let me ask you this though. Do you think Clemson has built up enough credibility that it could get sort of the Alabama treatment, which is, you know, the resume might not be what we'd like, but boy, Clemson's really, really good. And look at what they've done the last few yeah, years. The eye test. Yeah. yeah, I yeah. mean, it basically it sort of comes down to an eye test. I mean, because I'm of that opinion that Clemson is in, 
you know, again, you never know. And we'll get into this a little bit. You never know what the committee is going to do because the committee changes. But I, I've been sort of of the opinion that Clemson has enough cachet that it might win some arguments, resume based arguments based on eye test and sort of reputation coming in the way I think we all believe Alabama would. Do you think that could be the case? Yeah, I think there'd be some of that there, although they're not the committee's not supposed to do that. Mm. But if you're human, you're thinking that they are they are the poster child for the modern era. They've been in three straight playoffs. They've won one of them. Um, if, if you watch them play, they have elite talent, one of the best defensive lines in, in history, maybe. And Travis Etienne is a uh, is a Heisman contender. And oh, by the way, they lost their starting quarterback when you know he perceived that he lost his job. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're playing with a guy who was backing up at the beginning of the year. Although Trevor Lawrence is really really good, mm-hmm. just don't tell Central Florida this because I asked Bill Hancock that very question: Should this twenty game winning streak, which would be twenty five if they go undefeated again, should that be considered? in ranking them. And he said, absolutely not. It's year to year. So I don't think you can keep that out of mind for UCF. I certainly don't think you can keep it out of mind for Clemson. So let's talk. Okay. Cause you brought up UCF. The one yeah. thing I am interested in that, and again, we don't know what the rankings yet. Cause it's being recorded before them. The one thing I am somewhat interested in tonight is where UCF is. I, listen, I don't, I don't think they have a legitimate path here to get, mm-hmm. in, but if UCF is ahead of, Texas, two lost Texas, that has a really good win. Florida, two losses, but has beaten LSU. If they're ahead of those teams, you know, the Knights at least could be in position to be in the conversation. And when you start maybe piling up some two lost teams at the end of the season, we could at least like see a path here where they're getting some recognition and the committee has to at least be taking them seriously. If they are stacked up behind Penn State, for example, which has two losses and had really no great wins, but has played pretty well. I, I think Penn State's a pretty good team. But it, I think those are sort of the barriers. If you're looking for, like, what would make UCF interesting, how do they stack up against two lost teams with good wins? Well, that's exactly what they were looking at before these rankings came out because I asked Danny White, the AD, you know, you're you, you throw out this disrespect card. You're you're a top ten team in both polls. I mean, is that not the highest UCF has ever been ranked? And he said yes, but we want to see where we are in in the CFP. You know, I, are are they in uh, the top ten? They won all their games last year and didn't crack the top ten. They finished twelfth as the only undefeated team left in the country. So that's what they were looking for. That's what I would look for to see. I, I definitely think they should be in the top 10 um, as to, to a path to uh, the playoff. I think there is one, but they don't have it this year. There, there is one in general where the path opens up. That it can't be achieved this year. In my opinion, I think you'd have to have at least two power five champions lose twice um, that would be considered. And I think you'd have to beat two power fives in your non-conference, which they have scheduled and have done. It's just not happening this year because North Carolina game is wiped out by Hurricane Florence. And they're not I getting th- any help from the teams that they have scheduled. Like last year they had Maryland, and Maryland wasn't particularly good. No. And this year they have Georgia Tech, and Georgia Tech plays well every once in a while. But ultimately right. Georgia Tech might be 
a seven win team. So, you know, again, some of that is, is just bad luck, right? I mean, sometimes you roll the dice. It it is. Yeah. They scheduled North Carolina coming off a division title in 15 and they, it was Pittsburgh this year. They scheduled Pittsburgh uh, coming off, I think an eight win uh, season that same year. But you know, there's nothing you can do about that. I, you know, they, they, they are told, we're all told, schedule good people in basketball and football, so they, they have tried to do that. Let me jump Go in ahead. here for just a second on you, Dennis, on this scheduling thing, because the criticism I hear of from UCF, and I, I don't know if it's totally valid, but there's probably some credibility to it, is there are other teams in the group of five level, and I know the AAC doesn't look at itself like the rest of the group of five, it's power six, you know, mm-hmm. motto and things like that, that will say, hey, listen, Go take a road game at one of these big schools that will pay you. Now, not all of the schools are going to love to bring in UCF, right? Because there, there's also that. There's also that element, too. You have to, it takes two to tango. And if Danny White tomorrow picked up the phone and just started calling around to, like, the top 15 teams in the country, yeah. a lot of them would say, you know what? No, thanks. Now, we're not going to pay yeah. you a million dollars to come here and then have a hard time beating you. But some of them might. So I guess, is there any validity to some of the criticism of, hey, UCF, maybe consider just grabbing a road game. If you think you're that tough and you think you're that good, why don't you maybe step outside a demanding home and homes and schedule somebody, you just take a road game or take a neutral site game that maybe isn't really neutral? They think two things, like you said. They, They are going after home and homes. And two, Danny White has resigned to the fact that no high-level Power Fives are going to play him at this point. And it's a problem Boise State's run into and some others. Uh, So he has to go out and get these mid-level teams. Uh, He said, they're just not going to play us. And I I didn't ask the question directly, but I I would suppose they're not going to take a one-off. They want that team back there so they can get credit in the second meeting playing them at home or the home field advantage of playing them at home. Whether that's right or wrong, I think that's their mindset right now that they only want home and homes with these power five teams. And there's another part of this too, which always of course is, is at the core question of every scheduling conversation. These are money issues too, right? Yeah. UCF operates or tries to operate like a power five program. Yes. It would make, you know, a million dollars to play a road game, against you know some big team if that team is actually willing to do it but there's also the idea of like wait a second we have to have seven home games here we make a certain amount with our home games we have to do this for marketing purposes and to sell our season tickets like this is not just a UCF problem this is throughout all of college sports when yeah. we, all, every conversation about well they haven't played anybody or they haven't played anybody yeah but all scheduling questions come back to money and how many home games you need and how you can how you're going about financing your athletic department it's a strange conversation because we talk about scheduling in terms of competitiveness but so much of it has to do with finances and that all gets lost in the conversation about competitiveness yeah and i don't know look you know michigan's not going to take a return game at forty thousand seat bright house network stadium or whatever it's called uh, the return just isn't the same. And they've got the biggest biggest stadium in the country, so maybe that's a bad example. But Texas is not going to do that. Although te- Texas Texas bought out of a contract. Yeah, it was a couple of years ago. They bought out of a contract to play uh, UCF, and I don't recall the details. But you can understand why they might not want to go down there. They're, and Danny White's quote in the story I wrote this week, you know, they have every everything to lose and nothing to gain if they play us. So he gets it. 
All right, let's take a very quick break, and we'll come back on the opposite side here, and we'll talk a little Pac-12 and Big 12 and Big 10 and, and, and things along those lines. You're listening to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. And we're back with Dennis Dodd from CBS on the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. So, Dennis, let's go a little around the horn here. The Pac-12, Washington State seems to be really the only team that has a – even a faint chance of making the playoff because they have one loss and can conceivably finish the season 12 and one. Now I don't even think the chances of them finishing the season 12 and one is, is particularly good, but if they could, does the PAC 12 have any better chance than let's say UCF here? I think, yeah, I think the PAC 12 has a better chance only because they've got that one team in Washington state that can finish 12 and one, but you know, uh, it's it's going to take a lot for Washington State to get in. No other t- everybody else in the Pac-12 has lost twice, which means everybody they play, it's not going to be as big a game as maybe some of these teams in the in the Big Ten are playing. Mm-hmm. So no, it's it's going to be very tough. They have a loss to a diminishing USC, which is not going to look good. They 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 have beaten Stanford. They've beaten Stanford three times in a row and Oregon four times in a row, which is amazing, really. Right, it it really is. Yeah. But by but by doing that, now those teams have two losses. And it, does, does Stanford have three? I can't remember. But Stanford has three um, now. Yeah. Stanford so also lost to Utah kind of, and, and Notre Dame. Yeah, so kind of cutting the conference's own throat. So I think Washington State is just kind of the separate story that's a feel-good story for them. But – it's it's going to it's going to take uh, it's going to take a lot you know they they've got a chance only because they're a power five but it's going to take a lot for them to get in. Is Michigan the best team in the Big Ten right now? I, I do. I, I think that's true. I, I think they beat Ohio State at Ohio State in the big game later in November. I think it now, and I think it probably will be the case then because because of Michigan. And I mentioned that since the first quarter at Notre Dame when they fell behind. 14 to nothing, they've really outplayed everybody. I mean, they outplayed Notre Dame the rest of that night. The defense clamped down on, um, you know, the the quarterback that used to be known as Brandon Wimbush when he was playing. <laughs> and I and that, that probably led to him not playing, but that's another story. Um, uh, the defense, we know, Chase Winovich is an All-American. The, 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 uh, uh, the secondary is great. And I think Michigan's number one in total defense this week. And I really like what Jim Harbaugh has done with the offense. I think clearly he's let Pep Hamilton open up the playbook. They've called more downfield passes for Shea Patterson, and they've made him a runner, something he never was at Ole Miss, at least that I don't remember, uh, not to this extent. Yeah, uh, He was, a, free, made him he a, was a freelancer yeah. uh, who moved yes. around, but not necessarily a guy who they designed a lot of runs for. And, and, and clearly Michigan – has done a good job of not necessarily designing a lot of runs for him, but certainly at key times. Right. No, and I, and I think that's, and you said it, I think key times are are key. They have used them a lot on third and short or whatever to gain big yards. So, and so in relation to Ohio state, as Ohio state sits here right now, to me with all the upheaval and speculation about, about urban, they are just a gunslinging quarterback team. Their their best weapon is Dwayne Haskins throwing for 400 yards and let everything else fall into place. The defense has gone downhill. The offensive line isn't blocking well. They've got two NFL backs in the backfield and can't spring them. That's all they have going for them um, until further notice. I don't know if the Nebraska game proves any you know proves that much. They'll win, but what what will we know about 
uh, Ohio State that we'd already know that they're not who we thought they were. So that goes that goes to my point. You know, do you if you're the Big Ten, you don't want them representing your league to the committee at the end just because okay, and now now we're going to compare them to Washington State. All of a sudden, Washington State's back in the picture. You know, Oklahoma, uh, a second team in the in the in the SEC. And in, in any of those comparisons, they don't they don't come out too well right now. I think you're right as far as the comparisons and Michigan, you know, but it also speaks to the situation in the Big Ten, I think, speaks to how we are not that far away from things getting super messy here. Right. Yeah. Yeah. If you simply have Penn State beats, you know, and I I don't think this is going to happen. But if Penn State beats Michigan this weekend, and I think Michigan is like a touchdown, slightly more than a touchdown favor, they might be a 10-point favor. But that's not crazy. It would not be crazy. So you are literally one Michigan loss away, Michigan beats Ohio State, from having a two-loss champion at best in the Big Ten. And listen, the Big 12 is so volatile, right? I mean, you could easily have Texas beat West Virginia this week, Oklahoma Mm -hmm. lose at West Virginia on uh, the day after Thanksgiving, and now all the Big 12 teams have two losses. You know, a couple of weeks ago, maybe three, four weeks ago, not even, maybe two or three weeks ago, we were looking at it going, boy, there's a lot of undefeated teams here, and and who's going to lose? Are we going to have four or five undefeated teams at the end of the season? I'm telling you, man, I, I could easily see Thanksgiving weekend. I could easily see Thanksgiving weekend us going, boy, we are like one game away from having a bunch of two loss teams here. Yeah. Well, but that, to, to that point, that's why those three undefeateds at the top are in such good position to, to lose, <laughs> frankly, right. because if there's, if there's chaos there, you don't have much choice. Um, you know, Clemson, Notre Dame and, and Alabama to, to keep them in there. If all that happens, cause they don't play each other. Um, you know, Alabama's probably built up enough equity to withstand a loss, like I said. Uh, Notre Dame may as well. You know, do you if, if Notre Dame loses at at USC in the last game of the season, and what's happening is what you put out there. I don't think you have much choice but to keep Notre Dame in. You know, are, is their schedule that much different that that those teams? You know, I, I think the teams in the Big Ten, especially the East, are in your scenario, are kind of cannibalizing themselves. We knew it was the best division in football, but that's the result you get sometimes when everybody's, you know, pretty good. Michigan, I think, is bordering on great. Penn State, not so much, and Ohio State, not so much. Michigan State is below par. So, uh, but but all four are dangerous. Uh, it could beat each other. So I just, that's, uh, I think your scenario is valid. I also think those top three at the top are in really good shape because of it. How much leeway do you think Alabama gets? I mean, listen, I, I understand there's so many mm-hmm. other components, so it's always – every time we ask these questions, well, it depends. It depends on if Michigan has one loss or two losses as a Big 12 champion. Is that, has Oklahoma run the table or not? But how much equity do you think Alabama gets this year if it loses this weekend, which I don't think will happen. If it loses this weekend, doesn't reach the big the SEC title game. Or if it loses Uh, the SEC title game, it is sitting there with one loss. Because I don't know if the committee was thrilled about doing what they did with Alabama last year. And I got to wonder if there are other alternatives this year, as good as Alabama is, if the answer isn't, you know what? You got to win the games. You got to win. Yeah. Look, this would be the fourth year they've done this. So it wouldn't be unprecedented. Let's put it that way. Right. They've done it. Three years running that uh, a team that 
has won. It's it only played twelve games. Got in. I think it was. I think it was Oklahoma in fifteen. Yeah, I know it was Oklahoma in fifteen. It's the Big Twelve champ. Uh, Penn Ohio, Ohio State. State in sixteen, mm-hmm. and then last year Alabama. So they're the ones saying it's it's four best. And I, I think for them to not make it at this point with a loss would be spectacular. It would be a spectacular fall. And I, you know, you know, what would the story be? The committee's going against their trend or Alabama didn't achieve its promise? Because I don't know about you, Ralph, but I think this is the best team he's had there. It, it is, but don't you the worst, have, the but worst defense, have, but the best team. Well, and even that, the, the worst defense thing, I right. think, has probably been played up a little <laughs> bit, right? I mean, they've got maybe the best defensive tackle in the country and That's and, right. and two other guys who could be first-round draft picks. They're maybe a little wonky. But here's the one thing I would say. If they are the best team and they haven't played the most – it's not like they've played this grinding schedule. They will certainly yeah. have a grind of a November because they have right. three pretty good teams on the schedule in November and the possibility of a good team to face in the SEC championship game. But I, I just kind of feel like, yeah, but if you're that good, win the games. <laughs> you know, That's right. That's right. Um, and, and, and that's where and, that equity comes in. You know, they're, frankly, their schedule isn't great. Talking about Alabama, they've only played two teams with winning records, uh, A&M and Ole Miss, I believe. Now that's going to change, obviously, with, uh, with LSUs, and that'll be a great, would be a great win for them. But, you know, let's not go crazy here. Uh, the The reason this playoff was put together like this is because I, I particularly remember this in 2006 in Hollywood, Florida, at the BCS meetings when they were talking about the plus one. Remember that, Ralph? Mm-hmm, sure. Uh, talking about the plus one, and they were starting to get into this area. And somebody said, well, what about conference champions? And Mike Sly basically took his shoe off Nikita Khrushchev style and banged it on the table and said, no, it's going to be the best teams. Because he knew even then that the SEC, in any scenario, had the best chance of getting multiple teams in every year. Slive definitely set this up. Uh, his uh, his impact, even though he is gone on this yes. uh, playoff, will be felt for a very, very long time. Let me get you out of here on this. I'm going to deep, do a deeper dive on these games with uh, Gary Danielson from CBS on LSU and Alabama this week, which I think you will be there, Kentucky and Georgia. Just let, Let's frame it this way. LSU or Kentucky, which one has a better chance of winning this weekend? I think that Kentucky does because LSU is playing, at least what I'm calling, the best Alabama team uh, that Nick Saban's had. I don't think this Georgia team that Kentucky's playing is as good as it was last year. And I think Kirby Smart would tell you that. They have trouble stopping the run. Uh, Jake Fromm is about the same they have they've had one hundred yard rushing game this year from one person Elijah Holyfield. Now that has to do with splitting time, but you know duly noted. Um, there's questions about Georgia's offensive line. They've had they've had injuries. They haven't sprung the runners, um, and, and so I could I could easily see Kentucky winning that game at home with the defense that they have and making it a low scoring game. So yeah, I, I think Kentucky definitely. Okay, there was one more on here that I wanted to get to, and we're gonna we're gonna reverse field, and we'll right. do, but we'll do a couple of minutes on this, and that is about the playoff. One last note on the playoff is when do because I get this I get this I ask this a lot, and I have my pat answer. When mm-hmm. do you think the playoff will expand? I think we'll know in year nine. This is year five. Year nine, I was told that 
in year nine of 12, by the way, that's when the powers that be will have to give the rights holders an idea of what it's going to look like in the future. And you, you know those negotiating windows. That's when it would kind of start to leak out. Mm-hmm. Um, and do those rights holders bidding on it say, hey, this we absolutely need eight because there's more money in it, there'd be more viewers and everything else. But in answer to your question, I, I think it stays together at four unless, you know, it, for people rooting for expansion, root for Notre Dame to get in because that keeps another power five out. And if, you know, and if the Big 12 and Pac-12 most likely victims of that, then you're talking about only two, uh, let's see, two power five conferences being represented in, uh, in the playoff. But I, I, I don't think they're willing to budge right now. My pat answer for this is because people who wanted to expand are hoping they don't have to wait the full 12 years. And, I, yeah. I, and I'm with you. I think, no, you're probably going to have to wait. The one thing I have always said is I think the playoff changes when the people change. I don't yeah. know if Jim Delaney, John Swafford, Bob Bowlesby, especially those guys, Sankey, who was not the commissioner at the time, but certainly was involved. Yeah. Larry Scott. I don't know if any of those people who are the biggest power players in the room really want to do the work. And this that's not a knock on them. They have other jobs. But to reconstruct this playoff will take work. Yes. And for those people to get in the room again, and we, we were there the first time it happened. It took yes. years and months of, of hard work, years of talking about it, and then months of hard work. And I think until the people change, I don't think there's any urgency for the playoff to change. So I do think that we're probably in this for 12 years as opposed to something mid-contract prompting it to go to six teams or eight teams or something like that. Yeah, that's a great point because Bob Bowlesby just got an extension. I think he's very committed. I think Jim Delaney may retire after the next next, uh, contract expires for his team. And Larry Scott, if he can keep his general counsel out of the replay bunker, is the highest paid commissioner in the <laughs> among among all those. And you know, John Swafford is is there for a long time too. So yeah, I I think you're right. Dennis Dodd from CBS. Enjoy the scene down in Baton Rouge. That is always a great one. LSU and Alabama this week, and we will catch up hopefully in a press box uh, at some point this season. Look forward to it, Ralph. Thanks so much. Joining me now is Gary Danielson from CBS. He'll be on the call this weekend for the big game of the weekend, LSU and Alabama. He's done a a million of these games. Number one, Alabama. You have number four, LSU. But the point spread here doesn't look like an enormous game. Correct. So what is your read on this? What is the blueprint for LSU to stay in this game and win this game? Sure. Um, I think point spread is deceiving uh, because, you know, again, that's uh, a line that is to entice people to bet on teams. And what you have is a lot of people who don't really follow it closely. And, you know, Alabama would be favored to get people to bet LSU. You can see that that line has to be set for people to, to bet against what Alabama is doing so far. Not Not to say that Alabama shouldn't be favored in the game. I think they deserve that. But it all becomes relatively meaningless once the game starts. Uh, we all know that, and we've watched that in all sports. So um, I've done so many of these games that they all kind of feel the same to me. You know, it, it re- they rely on a lot of potential NFL players uh, matched up against other guys 
sometimes for the first or second time all year, they're playing against people of equal skill. And I'll tell you what I've noticed most about this game is first, it's very physical. And second, it's a very clutch game. Players make clutch plays in the fourth quarter. These play games have gone down to the end, you know, maybe more than had maybe three out of the four times that I've covered these games. There's unique plays made by clutch players with everything online and the emotions of those games at the end pop across television and, and, and it just makes it, you know, wonderful to cover. Not only do we have great uh, talent out there, but the game means a lot and then the game delivers. And, uh, and that's why, I mean, there's nothing close to it. And I've done, you know, Oklahoma, Texas, I've done Michigan, Ohio State, I've done USC, UCLA. But the level of excellence of this conference, of, how, of these two teams, excuse me, of how they've matched up in this game cannot be matched in college football history. And how does LSU then match up against what is a new element to the Alabama dynasty, yeah, which is yeah. a brilliantly talented quarterback? Not that there haven't been good quarterbacks at Alabama, right. but this is a different level of quarterback and a different type of sort of swashbuckling offense for the right. Crimson Tide. And this LSU team doesn't seem equipped to necessarily keep up with that. <laughs> Well, you're right. On offense, they don't. Uh, you know, defensively, they kind of do. Uh, they they have a lot of most of their talent this year. For if you talk in terms of NFL talent, and and again, I want to go back to that. You know, so, some of these games that we've done, like the the game of the century, 2011, there were 40 some players that ended up playing in the NFL from that game. You know, I mean, it was just amazing. It, it may take four or five years to get them all in the game, all in there. But that's how much talent is in the game. So there is a lot of defensive talent, but you're right. Um, the quarterback position for both teams has never been the best player on the field. They've come through some, with some amazing plays uh, to win games, you know, and, and make plays and clutch plays. But he's never been the centerpiece of talent like Tua is bringing to the table this year. So what I think is going to have to happen is, the talent for LSU in their secondary, where I believe they really have four NFL players uh, uh, playing in this uh, in their secondary. Kristen Fulton, Grant Delpit, John Battle, and Greedy Williams will all play in the NFL. Two of them will be number one draft picks. So they're the guys that are going to have to match up with what is a really a unique Alabama offense in that you know, because of Ralph, because of the college football being so different than all other sports, you have players in this game in any other sport, they'd already be playing professional. If they were hockey players, basketball players, baseball players, players on this field would be professional. And for Alabama, their three wide receivers are too good, really, for anybody to match up with. But maybe LSU can. And that could be unique in this game. If they can keep them, Alabama, from making easy touchdowns, frustrate them just a little bit because they have not been pushed. And we saw a couple weeks ago when Georgia, who had a fairly soft schedule, got into a game where they had to make clutch plays, they really weren't battle-tested. I think that's LSU's best way. Make it a game and then see what happens in the second half. 
So there's this line of thinking, and I think there's some stats to back it up, that this Alabama defense isn't quite as good as past Alabama defenses. Now, some of that may be a little played up because you also have, I see three NFL defensive linemen and maybe three first-round draft picks between Bugs and Williams and Davis. You know, there's some inexperience in the secondary. So again, LSU is an offense that is not necessarily making a ton of explosive plays. It seems like Alabama is a defense that you might expose in the back end. So those two things don't really mesh here. What does LSU do offensively to, again, they're going to have to score a few points. They're not holding Alabama to 17. Can they get into that 24 to 30 range? Well, they have no choice, Ralph. You're you're correct. Going into this season, uh, my question for Alabama fans, and basically it was a rhetorical question to Nick Saban was, would Nick be able to be comfortable enough coaching a team that wanted to play up-tempo, you know, almost, you know, like uh, Pat Riley when he had magic and he let them play. I mean, this is not usual for Nick. He usually protects his defense, runs a different type of offense. So I said, this Alabama team could say, we're going to score 42, can you? And that's basically what's happened. But if you look more closely, though, the level of play, the defense they've played so far is has been, you know, in the 90s and the 100s mm-hmm. ranked in college football. They really haven't faced anywhere near a unique defense this year. Texas A&M is closest, but that game got out of hand early because of an early turnover, and, and they just weren't in the football game. So I, I think, again, you go back to Alabama is unique. They're going to score four points. I think the best way for LSU to approach this is if they could borrow Army's game plan for a game, it's something a little bit like LSU did to Georgia when they went for fourth down four or five different times in that game. Army kind of lulls you to sleep by going, gaining three yards, three yards, three yards, one yard, three inches, and they're happy. Mm-hmm. Okay, And that's what LSU would like to do in this football game. It, they would like to slow the pace down a, a, a bunch for a number of reasons. One of them is they're going to get their best player back in the second half. But two, Alabama's never had to do it. You know, they've never had a defense that would give them the run look and find out if they can be patient enough. Imagine this. What if Alabama scores, but it takes them nine plays instead of three plays? What if LSU takes 10 plays and kicks a field goal? Well, you might be able to run nine minutes off the clock. And if you can get to halftime with the game being 14-3, to either direction, obviously, LSU would love to have the lead. But if they can make it a game, I think they're going to take that. Um, Because of Devin White not playing their best player, I think the 11th player on the field is the pressure for Alabama to win this game because they haven't been pushed and the crowd. That's the 11th player on the field for LSU. Yeah, and you've been in that, again, you've been in that stadium a lot. You know that that atmosphere, the players can feel that atmosphere a little bit, especially if if you do get to halftime and the game is competitive and things start going the Tigers' way. You can absolutely feel the atmosphere in that stadium. Let me turn over to Georgia, Kentucky here. And you, I don't think you've covered Kentucky yet. I know you've done a couple of Georgia games. Georgia has been... You know, they looked very much like the Georgia we expected against Florida. In some ways, there are some similar elements between Georgia, Kentucky, and LSU, Alabama. 
I don't think Georgia is quite as explosive as Alabama, but Kentucky no. is very much a grinded out team. They want it to this to be sort of ugly and muck it up. What is the again? So sort of the same question. What is the blueprint for Kentucky to beat a team that clearly has more talent? That's not to say Kentucky doesn't have talent, but clearly has more options to beat you. I think Kentucky has maybe one or two different ways to win, where Georgia seems to have a lot of different options. Yeah, you're you're right. I mean, um, the way Kentucky's offense has been playing lately, um, it, it's hard to envision that with as much talent as Georgia has on offense, that they're going to be able to keep this game close. Now, they're only they only really have one formula. Their formula is Benny Snell better run. You know, he he ran for a lot of yards against uh, Florida when when they put those yards on the board. And Georgia has been susceptible to the running game. You said that we all have gotten about what we thought from Georgia. I I, I think I'm a little different saying here. I, I actually thought they'd be playing at a higher level than they have. I I felt like they've been sleepwalking for a while. LSU woke them up a bit. But even in the Florida game, you know, that that game, 14-13, went into the fourth quarter. Dan Mullen has an inferior team. It does not appear that Georgia, even though they've got a bunch of talent, has uh, successfully replaced Roquan Smith. They just seem to be able to be penetrable uh, in between the tackles. And when you do that, it collapses the defense. It brings in that play-action game. George, as you mentioned, Kentucky's not a great throwing team. But if they can run enough, they can be passable with their uh, passing offense. Not going to be big time, but passable enough. And then we'll see if their defense is legit enough. I mean, um, Jake Fromm had his best game of the year, and they do have a lot of talent at the perimeter of that Georgia offense. We'll see if that big offensive line for Georgia can push Kentucky around because so far – and a and bad sign in that Florida game where those six or seven plays in the goal line stand because Kentucky will man up and make it tough for Georgia to run the ball. That's interesting. So you didn't necessarily come away from the Florida game because you also did the Georgia LSU game. Obviously, that was Correct. a terrible performance. I don't think you didn't come away from Florida thinking like, oh, no, they got it fixed. No, I didn't. Um, I, I, I think that they have the potential to get it fixed. I do not believe that they're playing at the level they played last year. Even though they went into Auburn, that Auburn scene last year, and you started out this interview, interestingly enough, that after this weekend, both spots could be uh, already uh, nailed in this SEC championship, and they could all be placed. If Alabama wins, they're in, and the winner of the Georgia-Kentucky game's in. But think about just a year ago. With three games to go a year ago, we had yet to see... Auburn knock off Georgia and Alabama. How different are things a year later in the SEC? Because all the drama happened at the end of last year. And even though Georgia lost that game, I thought they were playing at a higher level than they are this year. I think they have the potential to get there this year. But I still think, and you can see it in Kirby's interviews, he's still grinding them. He looks at it and sees that they're not to the level they were last year. And let me get you on one very more quick one, Gary. Do you think potentially, I know, listen, we'll get the answer this weekend, but sure. do you think potentially this is Nick's best team at Alabama? I thought their 16 team was pretty dramatic, but I think this one could be better. I think you're you're right on. Um the Trayvon Diggs uh, injury was a big injury because I actually think they were superior at corner than they were from even some of the championship teams. And um, 
I think they're, you know, we talk about how every team is improving, but Alabama might be improving on defense faster than anybody. You laid it out. Their defensive line were, you know, the, the one name was supposed to be Roquan, and it ended up being Quinn and Williams. And Isaiah Bugs is coming on fast. But their linebacker play is improving night and day from where they were at the beginning of the season. Now, college football is changing. The RPOs and the willingness to throw, you know, the, the, the tunnel screens and the, and the differences in the rules where you can't play as physical as you could has definitely taken something out of the Nick Saban-style defense. But with the way they can move the ball and do things on offense, I mean, I believe they have three NFL-ready receivers that could be playing pro football right now. They have an NFL-ready tight end. They have two offensive tackles that the New York Giants would take tomorrow and put them in their lineup. They have four running backs that will play in the NFL. One, I think Josh Jacobs is a future star in the NFL. And, of course, uh, Nick Saban might get his first uh, number one draft pick at quarterback at Alabama in uh, a guy who's just dazzling all the college football in Tua. Gary Danielson from CBS, thanks so much and enjoy the weekend. All right, thanks, Ralph. And now, three and out. First down. I did a story that looked at the first playoff rankings of each of the first four seasons of the playoff to see if we can spot anything that looks like a trend. Now, four years of polls is too small of a sample size to really spot trends, but a few notes. Half the 16 teams that were ranked in the initial top four from 2014 to 2017 made the playoffs. No number three team in the first ranking has ever made the playoff. Four of the teams that started in the top four over the last four years ended up not even making a New Year's Six Bowl game, including Texas A&M in 2016, which went from number four in the first ranking to unranked in the last. So figure about two of the top four teams that you see in the first playoff rankings will make the playoff. Second down. How great is this weekend in college football? Well, Chip Kelly is visiting Oregon as the opposing coach for the first time. UCLA faces the Ducks at Autzen Stadium, and it's probably not one of the, I don't know, top 10 most interesting storylines of the weekend. Third down. Usually I go off the radar here, but let's talk about USC, which actually has kind of dropped off the radar, and that's the problem. Head coach Clay Helton replaced his offensive line coach this week, and he also said he was going to take over play-calling duties when the Trojans play at Oregon State. Helton just signed an extension after going 11-3 last season and winning the Pac-12. He led USC to a Rose Bowl victory the season before. This year, USC is 4-4, and now Helton, who was something of a controversial hire when he was promoted from interim coach a few years back, suddenly looks to be in a precarious position. But USC currently has an interim president and an athletic director in Lynn Swan who has never hired a football coach and had zero experience as an AD when he got the job. Helton's contract runs through 2023. USC is a private school, so financial terms are hard to gleam, but a conservative guess on the buyout would be around $15 million. So what's going to happen? USC has three very winnable games coming up, Oregon State, Cal, and UCLA. Then it plays Notre Dame. 
Seven and five is not good for USC, but seven and five with competitive performance against Notre Dame should be enough to convince USC it is in a terrible position to replace Helton and give him another year. Because otherwise, USC would be spending $15 million to fire Helton while being poorly equipped to hire a replacement. That's the show for today. I'd like to thank my producer, Warren Levinson, for making me sound good. You can find us on Podcast One and Apple Podcasts. Please subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Please give us a good review. It helps us find more college football fans, and it helps more college football fans find us. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. Thanks for listening, and come back for more next week of the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast.